Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 147 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And I have a few more people to thank for sponsoring me for my six kilometer river swim that I'm doing this weekend. We're raising money for Level Water, which is a charity giving swimming lessons to children with disabilities. And I'm hoping to raise enough for at least 40 lessons and each lesson costs 15 pounds. So thank you to Julia and Andy to Lois Butterfield and to Suzanne Facer-Reeves. If you're listening to this soon after this releases, you can still sponsor me anywhere in the world. Just go to justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Jackie hyphen Fletcher too. So that's justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Jackie hyphen Fletcher too. So today I'm talking to Helena Popovic. Helena approached me and asked if she could come on the podcast. So let me tell you a little bit about Helena. Dr. Helena Popovic is an Australian medical practitioner who shows people how to live longer, stronger, healthier and happier through education rather than medication. She's a leading authority on improving brain function and is unique in bringing the latest discoveries in brain science to weight management. She graduated from the University of Sydney and is the author of the best-selling book, Neuroslimming, Let Your Brain Change Your Body. Neuroslimming won bronze medal in the International Living Now Awards. Her book was honoured for its contribution to positive global change in the health and wellness category. Neuroslimming enables anyone to overcome self-sabotaging behaviours and shed excess body fat through a mind plan rather than a meal plan. She enables people to boost their brain, turn stress into success, shed excess body fat without dieting or deprivation. Let's go and hear from Helena. Welcome Helena to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Absolutely fabulous to be here with you. (laughs) And we always start with by oh get your teeth in right Jackie we always start with where in the world are you and that that accent sounds fairly familiar to me yes I live in Australia um I'm actually about 1700 kilometers or just over a thousand miles north of Louise I'm in the state of Queensland on the sunny Gold Coast and um it's actually known as Gal by the traditional owners of the land and in the spirit of reconciliation it's 
very customary in Australia to pay our respects to the traditional owners who are the Yagambe speaking peoples, part of the Bunjalung nation, and to their elders past and present. So I pay my respects. So we shall we all pay our respects? Yes. We shall all do well, that. It's for the people who were there. Yeah. So, you know, I need to pay my respects because I'm here, I'm on their land, and I need to appreciate that they have looked after the land for, you know, millennia. Yeah. And we seem to be doing a good job of destroying it. Absolutely. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your journey, who you are, and how you came to low-carb keto? Okay, I am a Western-trained medical doctor, and I followed all the right things that I was taught. And I actually ended up coming to keto kicking and screaming. I was perfectly happy eating a low-fat diet, or so I thought, in that I was a healthy weight, I had plenty of energy, no notable illnesses, and then my partner was diagnosed with inoperable throat cancer. And he had none of the known risk factors, which were smoking and heavy drinking. So I, I was, I'm a family doctor, a general physician. So I did a deep dive into curing cancer because that was not my specialty. And I discovered the work of Dr. Thomas Seyfried. He's a professor of biology, genetics, and biochemistry at Boston College. And his research showed that cancer cells are cells that have lost their ability to produce energy using oxygen. Mm -hmm. And that means they rely on fermentation. And what that means is cancer cells have to rely almost exclusively on glucose and on an amino acid called glutamine, but mainly glucose for their energy. So it makes sense that severely reducing carbohydrate intake can effectively starve cancer cells. But you also need to keep feeding your non-cancer cells as well as you possibly can, and ketones are the best way to do that. So that meant I had to learn about the ketogenic diet, quick, smart, and because it was it was a life and death situation. So I became a keto connoisseur in a matter of days, seriously. Wow. Um, I think my next hero was the late Dr. Sarah Halberg. Yeah. Uh, she did a brilliant TED talk about reversing type 2 diabetes by ignoring the current medical guidelines. Um, and I would also say add to that, you know, enhancing your cancer survival by ignoring current medical guidelines, not necessarily ignoring treatment, but just making sure you don't just eat whatever you want, which is what you're told. Oh, look, just just get any calories into yourself as that you can. No, be very – this is when you've most got to feed yourself and not your cancer. Um, and I just got free recipes from the Charlie Foundation, Diet Doctor, Keto Cooking Wins. Um, I bought the New Mediterranean Diet Cookbook by Martina Slayerova and Dr. Nicholas Norwitz. And I basically just Google keto versions of all my partner's favourite dishes because he was not going to give up cheesecake and cottage pie. Um, and the result was he survived. He had chemo and radiotherapy as well. Yeah. But I have no doubt that the diet contributed to the effectiveness of modern medical treatment. Yeah. And, yeah, and what I now realise, for me, I much prefer eating fat to eating sugar. Fat is so much more flavoursome and I only need two meals a day. I used to graze all day long. I was hungry all the time. Yeah. And people have often said, oh, but isn't keto a lot of work? And the answer is absolutely not because my partner and I fast for at least 14 hours, at least 14 to 16 hours overnight. That's effortless. And then it's only two meals a day. Yeah. And I've never felt more satisfied. Yeah. And people can't believe it because they're in that sugar 
feeding frenzy. Yeah. They don't they don't realize that that's not normal. They, that's not normal that's ex- when it doesn't have to be. And the other thing I always say is it it frees up your brain power because before you were constantly thinking about food and constantly worrying what you're going to eat next and when you were going to eat next and what would happen if you didn't have enough food and all those things that took up a lot of brain energy as well. Absolutely. I have never felt more satisfied. Um, Yeah, I just don't think about food and it's like, oh, hang on. Oh, maybe I'm getting a bit peckish and it's been, you know, six hours, seven hours. I just do not need to snack. I think snacking is an invention of the snack food industry. It is not necessary and just not not needed if you're eating in a way that really nourishes you. So I know as well that um, your father had Alzheimer's and you did a deep dive on that as well, but maybe... Do you want to comment on that now? Was that before or after your partner? Or Un- Unfortunately, my father passed away before. Look, we were always pretty low carb because I always felt, let me just tell you a quick sort of side story in med school. This is relevant. Um, you know, when we were taught about diabetics, the first thing that came to my mind was, okay, so diabetic people are, for whatever reason, not able to metabolize glucose well enough. I, you know, they just don't tolerate glucose. So, so I actually asked the question to, of my lecturer, so wouldn't that be like they just shouldn't eat glucose? Because if a person has a peanut allergy, they don't eat peanuts. Yeah. Well, people with diabetes, it's almost like they have a glucose allergy, sugar allergy, so they just shouldn't eat sugar. They shouldn't eat carbohydrates. Wouldn't that solve the problem? And I was so cut down by my professor. I remember being told, don't be ridiculous. Carbohydrates are absolutely essential for life. It would be like asking them to stop breathing. <laughs> you know, we need carbohydrates, like we need oxygen, you know. And I was really to feel stupid. Yeah. And it was just incredible. So anyway, um, so that's why, to me, it still always made sense not to overeat carbohydrates because so many people were becoming intolerant of them. That's the way I viewed type 2 diabetes, and I think that is accurate. So we were never high carb. However, I was not aware of an emerging field called um, neuroketotherapeutics, which is using a ketogenic diet to treat neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, such as Parkinson's, and there's been brilliant work being done in that area that have actually shown very small trials to date because they're difficult to do and expensive to do, but that that have shown that placing people with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease on a ketogenic diet improves their functioning and improves their symptoms. And as long as their care partner is on board and they're given very very clear instructions and recipes, they do it and they feel better for it. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's an area that I want to get more deeply into and happy to chat to you, yeah, more deeply on another podcast. But what where I've been putting my energy is I developed um, what I call the missing piece in the weight loss puzzle, neuro-slimming. Mm. And basically I realised that, Nobody is looking at the role of our brain in body weight management. Yeah. So that's what came up with the concept of neuro-slimming, applying brain science 
yeah. to body weight issues. So because, is that- I mean, if- yeah, go on. Go on. Go on. Go on. I was just going to say, um, to me it's just so obvious. The brain is our control centre. The brain and its two-way communication with our gut, you know, sends out messages and instructions to every other part of our body. Our brain controls our hunger, satiety, motivation to eat, inclination to exercise, and yet our brain has been completely ignored by the entire weight loss industry. And, yes, there are a few token programs that incorporate mindset or give you some psychological tips to avoid cravings, but they don't go nearly far enough. And so I developed NeuroSlimming, which addresses the very core of a person's body weight issues, everything from self-image to self-talk to childhood trauma to breaking unhealthy habits. Mm. Yeah, because a lot of our eating is really, really emotional. It's it's not oh. about the food. It's just about the emotion and stuffing down the emotions and soothing the emotions so that's right it makes total sense yeah a key tenant like i've organized the program into a series of missions and mission number one is to eat when you're hungry and don't eat when you're not hungry yeah and so the first step is to become aware of all our non-hungry eating we eat when we're sad angry bored lonely in love out of love we stuff down our emotions when we don't want to feel them and this has just become such a habit half the time we don't even realize that that's what we're doing also stress in and of itself the hormone cortisol which we produce when we're chronically stressed number one stimulates our appetite number two actually instructs our body to lay fat down around our abdominal organs and within our organs, visceral fat, and that is the dangerous fat. So managing stress is actually one of the first things we need to do in order to regulate our appetite and get our body out of fat storage mode and into fat burning mode. Yeah. I was actually talking this morning to somebody who said, my cortisol levels are off the charts. She's had them Mm -hmm. tested. And I said, stress is the key factor for heart disease and having cardiovascular events and all these things. Stress is the biggest impactor. So hopefully she took that on board and she'll listen. Yeah. But stress is massive. So what got you into um, neuroslimming? How did you come up with the concept? Well, for 20 years, from the age of 13 to 33, I actually struggled with an eating disorder myself, mainly binge eating and sugar addiction, but I also dabbled with anorexia and bulimia. Um, and neurostimming is basically the result of all the research, experimentation and therapy I explored to heal myself. And in a nutshell, what I realized, I mean, this, this is the really big picture, neurostimming basically teaches people to feed their spirit, not starve their body. Mm. And it's not actually about weight loss, even though by living according to neuroslimming principles, people will shed excess unneeded body fat. But it's about making peace with our body, making peace with food, and really living life to the full, not using food to numb our emotions, not using food to alleviate boredom or combat loneliness or or, or compensate for lack of meaning and purpose in our lives. It's about Once we have a life that is truly fulfilling and we feel really connected with other people, we don't need those sugar hits to give us that dopamine hit that is lacking in our lives. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Mm. 
and and the other thing I realized with my own journey is that um everything in our lives is interconnected. You know, our health and our body weight, they're not this separate, isolated part of ourselves. They're affected by everything else that's going on for us. So affect obviously by our actions. So what we eat, whether we exercise, how much we sleep. Yeah. And that's the only thing modern medicine addresses. And it doesn't even pay much attention to sleep. But even more important than our actions are our thoughts, what we tell ourselves, our self-image, because that's what drives our actions. And our brain is very sensitive to language. So if I tell myself that I'm an emotional eater, I have no self-control, I hate exercise, I can't do keto for whatever reason, our brain treats our self-talk as a set of instructions. So we need to really monitor our self-talk, and I can elaborate on that later. Um, And, of course, we've already said our health and body weight are affected by our emotions, our stress levels, completely ignored by modern medicine, even though... 80% 80% of visits to the doctor, 80% are stress-related in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, stress, you might, you'd obviously also know, hammers our immune system. Yeah. So, you know, you're stressed, you're far more likely to catch everything that's going on. Um, And really importantly, our health and body weight are affected by our relationships and the social culture and physical environment we live in. And so the key is to recognise, you know, what's at play for, for each individual and to address the underlying issues. For some, it might be emotional eating. For some, it might be sleep. For some, it might be stress. For some, it might be, I just can't change because I just feel like I wouldn't fit in with my family. And and that's a really big barrier. People are afraid, uh, you know, I won't be able to eat out. I won't be able to eat with my friends. Think about it, Jackie. If you had to choose between your friends and your health, which would you choose? That's a really tough question for me now. Mm. Um, I think if you go back six years, probably my friends. Yeah. I would I would have said. And most yeah. people would. Yeah. And now and so I'm so health-focused people... that I probably yeah. would choose health. And that, do you see what, this is what, when, when people, when I suggest a ketogenic diet, that's the barrier. It's like, oh. In I, I can see some of them are thinking, no, I just can't. I just can't because I, I my family, my friends, too important to me. So it's about talking to them about how to overcome that barrier, how to have meaningful conversations and, and explain to your friends and family, you don't have to eat the same way I'm eating. I'm not going to be any different, any less close to you. All I want is some understanding and nutritional acceptance because Unfortunately, the way we eat, some people regard their diet like that, like a religion. Have you noticed that people get into big fights yep. about what is the right diet? And it's just like, what is the right religion? We are all individual, some carnivore, some vegan. And as long as it's real, whole food, no refined starches, you know, no free sugars, no ultra-processed food, either diet will work. You can be vegan, you can be carnivore. Yeah, and we see that. And yeah, if they've eliminated the ultra-processed foods, both can be very healthy. Absolutely. I, I worry about particularly vegans, not so much vegetarians, getting the right protein and enough protein. Yes, uh, I do too. But you know with some work that that can still be overcome it takes a bit yes. more effort and they have to eat a lot more 
yes um yeah it's still doable and and they have to take their vitamin b12 and they need to take their um their uh, you know uh, the the omega threes, but they've got to be because they don't want the uh, fish based. They'll have to take the kelp, you know, the seaweed based alg- algal, you know, um, omega threes. But yeah, yeah. But you know, I think the key thing is to recognise that it's not just food and exercise. There are so many psychological, emotional, social issues going on for people, and unless we address them, no diet or exercise program is going to work. Yeah. I agree because it it has to it's a holistic thing and it has to cover yes. everything around life and you know that's how I work with my clients it's it's everything covered yes uh, so what are your top strategies for avoiding ultra processed foods then okay oh heap, heaps and heaps um number 1 I think okay let's def- Make sure we're all on the same page. Let's define ultra-processed foods. So it's basically anything that contains ingredients and chemicals other than whole foods, and that includes sugars, and it's, you know, 70-plus different names. So any syrups, any fruit juice, anything ending in os, um, all, all the different names for sugars. Um, you can find them in on my website. Um, so anything that has added sugars, Vegetable oils, which are actually seed oils, which include your sunflower, safflower, rice bran, canola, soybean, cottonseed, all those oils. Emulsifiers, artificial colourings, flavourings, preservatives, any chemicals that you don't know the meaning of, any numbers. So basically that's that's what we're calling ultra-processed food, anything that contains things that you couldn't cook with yourself. Yeah. And I think the first thing is we need to change how we label and talk about ultra-processed food. I've got a a mission called Trick or Treat. And what I said, as long as we continue to regard ultra-processed food as a treat, we're going to feel we're missing out by not eating it. So really, really, I think the first thing is people just do not understand just how toxic ultra-processed food is. It's not a food. It's a toxic additive drug it won't kill you as quickly as cyanide but it will definitely shorten your life and reduce your quality of life yeah and if you look at the studies every one percent increase in our consumption of ultra processed food as a percentage of our daily calories so every one percent more ultra processed food we eat increases our risk of cancer by 1.2 percent and increases our risk of type 2 diabetes by 1.5 percent wow so the first thing is to really get those facts out there because people go, oh, come on, and people go, oh, come on, don't you ever give yourself a treat? I go, yeah, berries, bone marrow on toast, on um, keto toast because I make my own keto bread, absolute heaven. You know, it's about changing our definition of a treat. Yeah, I give myself a massage. You know, I'll, I'll go and, and sit in a spa. I'll have a sauna. I'll walk in nature. Why does a treat have to be some chemical concoction that we put in our mouth? Yeah. I'll go and see a movie. I'll listen to my favourite music. I'll just sit out in the garden. I'll watch a sunset. They are real treats. So it's really changing our perception of what we're defining as a treat and really honestly understanding just how toxic ultra-processed foods are. 
So that's the first strategy. Can the I, second, can yeah, I just go on, something? So, because I was at a conference. I mean, we're recording this at the end end of May, and I was at the public health collaboration conference. And one thing they were saying is that these ultra processed foods need to be relabeled as recreational drugs. I hundred percent agree. Absolutely, that is exactly what we need to do. Yeah, he said but they're not food. We know it's not food. We call them food-like substance, but it's not real food. It's not. It's not. It's not. It shouldn't even have any food in the label. Yeah, because it's not. What is a food? A food is something that leads to growth, repair, nourishment, and healing. Yeah, and, well, and also at the conference. I mean, I'm, I've I've said this already. Um, by the time this comes out, I will have already said this, but one person said, if it's a plant, you can eat it. If it's something that eats a plant, you can eat it. But if mm-hmm. it's made in a plant, you can't eat it. I think that is fantastic. Yeah, I, I really that really stuck with me. Yeah. I, I have another poem for you. I tell people you can eat anything that's from the land, from the sea, from the sky, or from a tree. Not from a packet, not from a tin. If it comes in a box, throw it in the bin. Ah, I like that one too. <laughs> I made that one up. <laughs> but no, I love yours. I think it's terrific. <laughs> Sorry. So that was the first part of that was the first strategy. So relabeling ultra processed foods as just toxic chemicals, as, as recreational drugs. That was brilliant. The second strategy, and I get people to do this um, in when they come to see me. I just say it's it's actually at one of the missions. When you eat, just eat. Savour every mouthful. We don't overeat because something tastes too good. We overeat because we're not paying enough attention to what we're eating mm. or the food is filling an emotional need, not a physical hunger. So I get people to bring in what's your absolute can't live without junk food and they'll bring it in and it'll be, you know, some kind of donut or biscuit or it could be sweet or savoury. Uh, let's just say it is a donut. And I'll say, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to eat this as though you've never eaten it before. Just take, just firstly, take in the smell. Look at it. Take that first bite. And before you even become aware of the taste, what's the texture like? Put your absolute full attention on what you're eating. Is it dry? Is it wet? Is it sweet? How quickly does it dissolve in your mouth? You know, don't take the next bite until you fully absorb the flavour. Then we do it with the next bite. And I tell you what, there hasn't been a single person that hasn't said, I hate you, you've just ruined it for me. (laughs) I realise it's not as tasty as I thought it was. It's just yuck. So if we really pay attention, our body will give us signals that, you know what, I don't really need this. But, you know, nobody sits there savouring junk food. It's just down there, down the hatch as quickly as possible. <clears throat> the third strategy, a try, do you, you know, yeah, have you ever tried anything like that, Jackie? Um, Done that really mindful eating? No, no, I can't say that I have. It works really well with chocolate. Um, I do like the odd square of lint 90% dark. And the reason I I choose that one, there is a 95%, but what they do with the 95% is they add an alkali, which is called dutching the chocolate, Dutch chocolate, which takes away 
the benefits of some of the a lot of the benefits of the polyphenols in the chocolate. So 90% they don't dutch, they don't add the alkali, they don't remove the acid. So it's got all the good um, properties and health benefits of the polyphenols of the cacao. Um, and it's got a really high amount of cocoa and very little sugar. And I only need one square because I eat it so mindfully and it is so rich. It's like I just don't need any more than one square. So mm -hmm. that's so yeah. I um, I eighty-five percent, but um Oh close enough. <laughs> I um I I only have one square. Yeah. That's all I need. And I but and I don't like it very much. It's just sometimes that sweet thing at the end of a meal, so I put butter on top to take oh, wow. some of the bitterness of it. Okay, so that's three. three. So, so another really important strategy to help us avoid cravings and binge eating is to learn to feel our feelings and just be able to sit with the feeling of the craving, to sit with the desire to binge. Now, from personal experience, I can tell you that is the most uncomfortable feeling I have ever had to sit with. You know, wanting to have, you know, the, the chocolates, the packets of biscuits, the ice cream, whatever it is I wanted to stuff down my face just to bury those awful feelings, I just sat there with them. And it was almost like I, my body almost started shaking. It was it was. It's worse than having the worst itch and not being able to scratch it. Unless you've actually sat there feeling it, it's very hard to describe, but it is extremely uncomfortable. But if you just sit there with it, it passes. And it doesn't even take that long. A couple of minutes, it sounds, feels like a very, very long time, but a couple of minutes if you're honestly just sitting there with the feeling and not trying to avoid it, not distracting yourself with other thoughts, but actually feeling that feeling, which is something we're not taught to do and certainly not used to doing, it passes and it's almost like you, I've just had a dip in the most beautiful, cool water and it's like heaving a big sigh of relief and I, you just don't feel like it anymore because you've eliminated the need for it by feeling that feeling. Mm, that's really powerful. Very powerful. Scary, scary if you've never sat there and felt your feelings but trust yourself, trust your body, and trust someone who's done it, it passes and it is very, very empowering because if you can sit with negative feelings, you can cope with anything because that's that's the hardest thing to do. It's our feelings and our responses to things that get us down, not the thing itself. Yeah. It's how we respond to it. And the fourth strategy, and this is beautiful, and this is just emerging research to improve our health on every level, is to increase the awe factor in our life. In other words, replace the dopamine hit that you wanted from food with something truly awe-inspiring. For example, what brings you a sense of wonder? What takes your breath away? A glorious sunset, a full moon, the vastness of the stars in the sky, looking up at a tall tree, noticing a beautiful flower. What scientists have, no have found is that the power of awe, it changes our physiology. It releases oxytocin. It reduces cortisol. So also oxytocin is the cuddle hormone, so we feel closer to other people. Um, they've actually done studies where they get people out and they, they get them to look up at tall eucalyptus trees or looking at something like the Grand Canyon. 
and they find that they become more generous and and empathic afterwards. So they they get people to to you know one group of people will go and you know listen to some music, um, you know have some pleasant games, and then they ask them to donate to charity or they do give them tests that that show how kind or empathic you are. If they do things that bring them all, their generosity goes up, they're more likely to help someone, they're more likely to volunteer for something, they give more generously to charity. It's absolutely amazing how it changes our physiology, reduces depression, improves our mood, sharpens our thinking, improves our memory. And this is just increasing that awe factor in our life. And I think it's linked with really filling our life with meaning, purpose, and true joy. Mm. And you know, that's, I mean, I'm getting a bit metaphysical here, but it is actually really, really important. Yeah. Those, yeah. So that would lead us nicely into the beliefs around food yes. and eating and all those things that affect how we eat and when we eat and all sorts of beliefs come into our biology and how that gets affected. Tell us a bit more about that. Probably the the best way to give you an example is to tell you about a famous study called the milkshake study. Have you heard of that? This is really mind blowing. I might um, have done, but I don't. I, I probably need to know more specifics to. Re- okay, Alia Crum was the researcher. She's the researcher at Stanford University in California, and this was in two thousand and eleven. They invited um, volunteers to the lab, and they were all given the exact same milkshake. Same ingredients, same flavors, same calories, same everything. And then they were randomly signed to one of two groups. And group one was told that the milkshake was a low-calorie diet shake. And group two was told that the milkshake was a high-calorie indulgent treat. And several hours later, the, all the participants had blood samples taken to measure their ghrelin levels. Now, ghrelin is our main hunger hormone, so it makes our stomach growl. And when ghrelin goes up, our hunger goes up. And those who'd been told they'd had a diet shake had significantly higher levels of ghrelin Mm. and reported feeling hungrier than those who'd been told they had an indulgent shake. Yet they'd all consumed the exact same number of calories, same ingredients, same amount. Yeah. And and then they, they said, oh, you know, thank you very much for participating in the study. Here's some food to eat. The people who had been given the so called diet shake ate more than those that had been given the so-called indulgent shake. Yeah. So and it, so it wasn't just in their mind. This is this is the mind-blowing thing. It wasn't just them thinking, oh, I've had a diet shake, therefore I can afford to eat more. Their actual hormones changed in response yeah. to believing that they'd had a diet shake. Yeah. And this, this has far-reaching consequences because ghrelin, the hunger hormone, um, it also slows down metabolism and tips the body towards storing fat rather than burning fat. So it's really important that we don't think we're depriving ourselves when we make healthy choices. We really need to be telling ourselves that whatever I mean is nourishing, not punishing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, before we go out healthy, oh, it's going to be a drag and I'm going to be missing out on this, that and the other and it's going to be boring. No, no, no. We've got to tell us I am nourishing myself. I'm not punishing myself. So how can... Yeah, and I hadn't heard of that study. So as you were explaining it, it's like, no, I haven't heard of that. Um, but I totally believe it because I am really a proponent of the mind 
is very powerful. And and just before we came on air, I mentioned to you that in one of the groups I'm running at the moment, I told people, somebody said, I'm starving. And I said, no, yes. you're not starving. You're hungry. You might be very hungry. You might be extremely hungry. But you're and I used to say this to my kids and I still do. You're definitely not starving. Because if you're in starving mode, if you think you're starving, your body's going to be storing fat because you feel like you're starving. And so how you talk to yourself is so, so important. And it's not just and we talk to ourselves in ways that other people would never talk to us. Absolutely. And it makes such a such a difference. Let me tell you, can I tell you about another study, which is Mm -hmm. is another way we trip trip ourselves up. Most people think that exercise increases hunger. Biochemically, though, the opposite is true because whenever we exercise, we produce a chemical called BDNF. That stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And apart from actually stimulating you know, new connections between brain cells and improving our clarity of thinking and improving memory and learning, BDNF reduces hunger. And the more intense the exercise, the more it suppresses hunger via additional hormones like adrenaline and noradrenaline. And the effect is pretty immediate. It peaks around seven hours later and wears off after 24 hours. So biologically, when we exercise, we do not produce hunger hormones. But I'll bet that many listeners are thinking, no, 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 I'm genuinely hungrier after exercise. And I genuinely believe believe them, but it's because you expect to be hungry after exercise, not because it's a biological imperative. Yeah. And here's the marvellous thing. Now that people, once you know that exercise doesn't stimulate hunger, you won't get ravenous after your workout anymore. Now, you might be sceptical, but at least you'll start to question yourself. Yeah. Am I really hungry? I can't say Mm. that I've noticed being any hungrier after exercise. No. But a lot of people do say they are. Whether I've eaten or not. So how can people start changing their beliefs around around what they what they're thinking what what you know give us a tip on how you, how somebody might go about that okay firstly simply knowing that our beliefs out affect our biology and our experience of life allows us to question our beliefs and ask if they're serving us so i i tell people get into the habit of noticing what you're telling yourself you can't change something if you're not aware of it so what are you saying to yourself about what something or someone is doing to you or what you can or cannot achieve? I can't find time to exercise. I can't, um, you know, do this keto stuff. You know, I can't get rid of the the hunger pangs. First thing is instead of saying I can't, change it to a question, how can I? This is called shifting linguistic categories. Every time you feel like saying I can't do something or it can't be done or it's impossible or it's too hard, change it into a question because that activates different regions of the brain and we are unconsciously telling ourselves, hey, brain, try and look for solutions. So instead of, you know, I can't find time to exercise. Now, how might I find time to exercise? You don't have to give yourself an answer. You just start to ask yourself questions rather than making statements. You know, I just can't get my family to eat any better. How might I get my family to eat any better? And what will happen is your brain will start scanning your environment looking for solutions and you might turn on a podcast and guess what? Something they're discussing 
coincidentally gives you the answer you're looking for. And it's not a coincidence. It's because you've programmed your brain to find to try and find a solution. So yeah. start asking questions rather than making statements. Yeah. And the second really important, this is just a little habit. It's also one of the missions in Mission Slim. Well, I call it Mission Slim Possible, part of neurosimming. Get into the habit every day of giving yourself a clap, not a slap. What I mean by that is just give yourself a mental pat on the back whenever you accomplish something. You don't have to shout it out to everyone. Just have a quiet word to yourself. You know, I'm really pleased with how I handled that situation. I made a terrific keto dinner this evening. I'm proud I went to the gym today, even though I didn't have time. Think, think I had time. It seems small, but it makes a big difference because, as I said earlier, we're so good at beating ourselves up for our sins and really bad at acknowledging our wins. Yeah. But once we start to notice more and acknowledge more of what we're doing right rather than wrong, we start to see ourselves as more capable. And if we see ourselves as more capable, we become more capable. And this is called cognitive bias modification, that we start to change how we see ourselves for the better. Mm. So and there's some other questions I've got, but before before we do, how does a G, medically trained GP get to be so thinking around beliefs and food and nutrition and I mean the food and nutrition I can get but actually going into the mind stuff how did you get from being a GP and being medically trained to going into the stuff we've been talking about I've always felt that that just in, innately felt that that was important. And right through my entire medical studying medicine, I kept waiting for us to get lectures on how our brain and our beliefs and our thoughts affect our biology. And they never came. And I finished my medical degree going, something drastically missing here. And so I then started to do my own research. I read the Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton. Um, I just did my own personal exploration and just Googled. Plus, I think it started. I started Googling placebo effect. I'm sure everyone's aware of the placebo effect. If you believe that, uh, you know, what you're receiving is a healing remedy, even if it's just a sugar pill, it will work. And what we've actually noticed that the placebo effect is real. It's it has a biological effect in our body. So let's just say. I tell a person, um, this is a really powerful painkiller. It will remove your excruciating back pain. And if that person believes it, their brain goes into prediction mode because our brain is a prediction machine and it is a, a step ahead of us all the time. You know, your uh, for instance, your pupils will constrict before if you know you're going to step outside into a really bright, sunny um, garden, yeah. Your pupils will constrict before you even step outside the door in preparation because your brain is a step ahead. In wow. the same way, if I tell you you're getting a painkiller, um, your body will go, ah, I know what's going to happen when I get this painkiller. I'm going to flood my body with endorphins. So your brain starts to make its own endogenous endorphins, our own endogenous painkillers, and it removes the pain. Yeah. Now, this is how real it is. If you then, without telling the person, give them a drug called naloxone, it blocks opioids, morphine. It'll abolish the placebo effect as long as the person doesn't know that they're getting the naloxone. 
because it counteracts the effect of their own biology. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's it's really interfering with with their own self healing. Correct. Yes. And and the message there is our beliefs have a physical effect on our body. It's not just in our mind. And that's what then got me on the path. It's like I just kept digging deeper and deeper into how the placebo effect work and it just sort of led me down the path of realising just how important our beliefs, our thoughts, our self-image is. We can't behave any differently to what we believe ourselves to be. And that's why, you know, when people come in to say, in and say to me, I'm a sugar sugar addict, yeah, I'm a sugarholic, I'm a carboholic, no, you are not. You currently eat a lot of carbs. You currently feel that you have a preference for sugar. Distance yourself from it. It's not your identity. Be careful what you say. Mm. Don't adopt an identity that doesn't serve you. Don't say, I am angry. I feel angry. That immediately puts distance between you and the emotion and you understand that you're not an angry person. You just happen to have this strong emotion flowing through you. It will pass. So, I mean, we've interviewed um, lots of people around food, sugar addiction and food addiction. Mm. So are you saying that that's not real or? Oh, the addiction is real, but to overcome the addiction, yeah. you have to start by distancing yourself from it. It's real, but don't call yourself an addict. Say, I have problems with sugar right now in my life. Mm. That's completely different to saying I'm a sugar addict because then it's like, well, it's who I am. But if you say I have a problem with sugar, I'm eating too much sugar for my good, I am having difficulties right now, okay, well, let's just peel away the layers and one by one address those difficulties. Yeah. So it the power of the addiction if you don't call yourself an addict. Yeah. I, Without I, denying that you have a problem. I'm not saying you deny that you have a problem. No, you're just taking back more control and more power. Yes. I mean, I don't know how it works in Australia. Can you talk to your patients around these topics or do they have to come to you separately? Um, work. Okay. They have to come to me separately because I can't. Well, I am now working more and more as a health coach because I just can't get enough time in the medical model to spend all this time with them. I mean, I do. I've now got patients who know, you know, you self select. If you want a quick fix, you quickly learn you don't come to me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm not going to give you a quick fix because it's not going to work. So you quickly get to find another doctor if you're not prepared to. You know, I, if you're excreting pain in the moment, something that needs to be dealt with, of course I'll give you antibiotics and painkillers in the moment. However, we are also going to have a discussion about, okay, what's what might be the root cause of this? If you have high blood pressure and you're a walking heart attack, of course I will give you something in the moment to lower your blood pressure, but we are going to have to talk about what is it in your life that is raising your blood pressure? Is it stress? Is it lack of exercise? Is it too much sugar? Is it too much salt? What's the problem here? Yeah. 
And you say education is more powerful than medication. 100%. 100%. And let's remember all medications, no matter how effective they are, have side effects. Antibiotics are life-saving, no doubt about it. However, antibiotics also negatively affect our healthy microbiome. Yeah. There's a price to pay for all medications, regardless of how life-saving they might be. That's just So they are a temporary measure. I believe that the role of modern medicine is to keep us alive long enough to enable us to truly heal. To you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, you've got to. You've it's got really to good just to, to keep you alive, to give you what you need to survive, and now the real work starts. Yeah, and because I think people think, oh, I can take this pill, I can take that pill. But then you just end up taking, you start with one and in years time, you've got not a year, but in several years, you've, you're now yeah. on 10 or 15 because you're taking this pill to counteract the effect of that pill. And, and so it That's goes. Right. And, and you just put, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. It's not, you need, you need to heal the underlying cause of the problem, not just bury the symptom. Yeah. And I think we need to understand that the medical model doesn't doesn't cope with that they they just want to cover your symptoms here take this for your symptoms off you go they're not interested in how it was caused why it was caused what's the underlying cause how to get rid of it what's the treatment to heal that that's not that's not how the current day medical model works it's not it's not how we were taught we weren't taught question in terms of, you know, what our professors told us. Um, and we're not taught to explore the deeper picture. We are taught to manage medical issues with drugs, radiation or surgery. Yeah. We're not taught anything else as doctors, yeah. unfortunately. I mean, yeah. we, we do, you know, they um, mouth the platitude, yes, it's got to be a holistic model. But it's not. It's a very, very narrow segment of of what it means to be human. Yeah. And now they silo every different organ in the body. So yes. if you've got something with your liver and something with your heart, these two medical professionals are not talking to each other to find out is the cause related or anything like that. So if, as, we're talk, as we're talking about drugs, can we talk about the um the new slimming wonder slimming drugs um that are being advertised heavily at the moment that cost a fortune and have you have to keep taking them and all things like that? Can you tell us a bit about those? Drugs, one called semaglutide. Um they're gonna be called different things in different countries, Azempic, Wagovi, that's semaglutide. Uh and the second one is Terzepatid, I, I can never say this, terzepatide, uh, Manjaro, that, that's how it's better known. Um, basically, both of these drugs were developed for people with type 2 diabetes. Yeah. They are the prescription medications. A person injects these drugs under their skin, uh, in their abdomen or thigh, once a week to improve their blood sugar levels, to lower their blood glucose, 
and to lower their hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of, you know, long-term glycemic control. And, of course, in the fine print, they are used in conjunction with the reduction in calorie intake and exercise. Now, both of these drugs are their analogues of hormones that our gut produces to stimulate insulin release. And the way they work is, well, they, they increase insulin. So, of course, they're going to reduce your blood sugar levels. Yeah. But what they noticed when these diabetics were taking them was that they were losing significant amounts of weight. And so they started to test these drugs on non-diabetics who needed to shed excess body fat. And sure enough, they there's no doubt about it, they do lead to a minimum 5% up to 20% reduction in body weight over the course of it was a 68-week trial, 60-something-week trial. I think it was a 68-week trial. And I'm going to talk about these two drugs together as they're very, very similar, even though they're not exactly the same. But basically they work in a very similar way. They reduce hunger by affecting the brain and they slow down stomach emptying so that you feel fuller faster and so you end up eating less. And as I said, you do lose a significant amount of weight. And, you know, these drugs are being touted as the best thing since sliced bread, which should be a warning because listeners of this podcast will know that sliced bread isn't such a good thing after all. (laughs) So that's the good news. The bad news is when they stopped taking the drug, two-thirds of the weight was regained within the first year and you know, it's probably not a far stretch to imagine that in time you'd regain the whole lot of weight. And those that only lost a little bit of weight, remember I said the range was 5 to 20% mm-hmm. of your body weight reduction. Um, those who only lost a little bit actually ended up regaining more than they lost after they um, stopped taking the drug. So that's that's the first piece of bad news. Okay, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. I don't believe these drugs are a good thing. Now, you know, it'd be I'm happy to be proven wrong, but so far I have a lot of reservations, and here are my reservations. Um, just number one, there are a lot of side effects, which is why you have to start on a very slow dose, and even in the trials, I think it took them at least six weeks, maybe even a couple of months, to get them up to the maximal dose. So you start with a tiny little dose and you have to slowly over over a period of a couple of months get up to the maximal dose because a third of people had severe nausea, vomiting, diarrhoea, constipation. A fifth of people had nasopharyngitis, which is a runny, stuffy, awful nose. 10% of people had headaches. 5% of people had abdominal pain. Now, this is what I, I find this extraordinary. If I told people taking any other drug for any other condition, these are the side effects, they'd go, no way. Mm, I'm not yeah. putting up with that. But because it's a weight loss drug, I'll put up with anything, okay? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I find that way. Now, to be fair, if you can stick it out for two to three months, most of the side effects do go away, okay? Yeah. Not for everyone, but for most. But here are now the things that worry me strongly. Firstly, 
the, what I noticed because I sort of monitor patients' heart rate, blood pressure, as soon as they start taking these drugs, they have an increase in their resting heart rate of something like 8 to 15%, average 10%. Yep. So, or are you like, so if your resting heart rate is, is, you know, say, say 60 beats per minute, overnight it's going to go up to 70 beats per minute for some people. Yep. 66, 70. Now, that's never a good thing like increasing your heart rate. That's, you know, there's no condition that I'm aware of in medicine where we want to increase your heart rate. And and when you exercise too, your heart, your maximum, for the same amount of exercise, people's heart rate goes up a bit more than it, it did before. I don't consider that to be a good thing. Secondly, um, a lot of a lot of my patients have had a reduction in what's known as heart rate variability, and that is the ability of your heart rate to change from fast to slow when needed. Like if you're stressed and have to act quickly, you want to be able to speed up your heart rate and get to do the thing effectively. Yeah. But equally so once that stress is gone, you want your heart rate to drop back down to normal quickly. Yes. And appropriately. Well, about half of my patients, you know, that have started not from me but that have come back and started this drug with someone else, um, have shown a reduction in their heart rate variability. Not a good thing. Yeah. And here's the but here's the thing that worries me the most. When you and this was shown in the studies, when you look at they've lost the weight, yes. But when you do a DEXA scan and look at how much fat they've lost compared to how much muscle they've lost, for every kilogram of fat loss, there is almost a kilogram of muscle loss. Wow. That's that's not a good thing. That's you do thing. not want to lose muscle mass. Losing muscle makes you less healthy, shortens your life. Losing muscle reduces your insulin sensitivity. Our muscles are our biggest glucose sink. The more muscle you have, the more carbohydrates you can get away with eating without getting out of ketosis and without getting type 2 diabetes. Yeah. So you do not want to lose muscle. And, and this is why I'm such a huge proponent of strength training as absolutely essential, um, you know, as part of any any healthy lifestyle. But certainly, you know, it goes hand in hand with a ketogenic diet. Yeah. So you were going to say something? Yeah, because you all know about this having been anorexic, but, you know, a heart is a muscle and it's one yes. of the most easily digestible muscles. So, you know, you could be damaging your heart if you're losing muscle. You could. Yeah. You could. And part of the problem too is um, they these drugs seem to reduce people's appetite for protein. And as we age, we need more protein, not less. People are not eating generally enough protein. We need a, a, you know at least you know one gram per kilogram of lean body mass of yeah. protein, but easily you know two grams of protein per kilogram of lean body weight. Mm. Um, and if we don't, we will be losing half a percent of our muscle mass per year. That's 5% per decade from about our 30s. That means between the ages of 30 and 70, a person can lose uh, one-fifth of their muscle mass. No. That immediately increases our risk of type 2 diabetes. That immediately, you know, reduces our insulin sensitivity. 
Yeah. And we're frail. We're more likely to have a fall. You know, it's just got all bad things going for it, losing our muscles. Yeah, I was going to say about falls and the biggest cause yeah. of accidental death in older people is falling. Yes. yes. So they are my concerns that you're losing just as much muscle as you are fat and you don't want to be losing muscle. You're eating less protein. And the minute you stop, it comes back on. So are you going to have to take this for the rest of your life? And for what, 15 20%? loss of body weight and it seems to plateau after that yeah we're not sure whether it doesn't look like you just keep losing weight no once you sort of lost 20 percent, that's that's kind of where it stops so we don't know the long-term consequences because these drugs just haven't been around for long enough um one there was one study i think it was a european study found that there might be an increase in a specific type of thyroid cancer so i certainly wouldn't give it to anyone that's ever had thyroid cancer either like the bottom line is you can achieve a healthier body weight you can shed the excess visceral fat and you can get healthier without these drugs just lower your carbohydrate intake. Yes, it may seem to take more work in the initial stages, but how much more empowering is it if you can do something without having to rely on a drug with potentially serious side effects that you might have to take for the rest of your life that we really don't know what's, what it's going to do, you know, 10, 10 years on? No. And for me, I mean, I've lost probably around 25% of my body weight of where I started which is more than the 20 that the drugs say but I've also interviewed people that have lost 50% of their body weight so that's a big difference yes yes it is yeah 20% is well far, and it might only be 5% and that's nothing really is it for most people mm. now I, I shouldn't have a caveat here remember these drugs were designed for people with type 2 diabetes yeah. So I'm not saying that if you are have absolutely out of control type 2 diabetes that you shouldn't be given these drugs. I'm just talking about these drugs as a weight loss yeah. agent. And secondly, if somebody came to me and they need urgent orthopedic surgery but they were just too obese in order to undergo the surgery, I would prescribe these these medications in order for them to to allow them to ha- to shed the excess body weight in order to allow them to have the surgery that they needed to have. So there are specific instances where I think, as I said, these modern medicine keeps you alive long enough to enable you to heal. So these I would use them in the short term to allow this person to either control their diabetes or to shed excess body fat. That was absolutely essential in order for them to have surgery. That's an example. I would give them these drugs. Yeah. But I wouldn't just, I want to have a bikini body. Mm, no. Yeah. Is it really worth <laughs> worth all the potential risks? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it never is. So exactly, not something I would ever consider or even in my past life would have considered. So, so yes. um, one of the things that you mentioned to me before we finish up was around the who classification on artificial sweeteners that people might have heard of um 
talk to us more about the the reclassification and whether artificial sweeteners are good, bad or indifferent? Well, the World Health Organization has just released a new guideline on what they call non-sugar sweeteners. And the WHO, World Health Organization, recommends against their use to control body weight um, or to reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes, heart disease and other non-communicable diseases. Now, why have they made this announcement? It's based on the findings of a systematic review of the available evidence that show that there were actually no benefits to using um, non-sugar sweeteners in terms of reducing body fat. And there was even a suggestion from the research of harm that there might be an increased in fact, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, even mortality. Now, um, listeners are probably going to be aware that there are different types of non-sugar sweeteners. And they did include most of them. So I'll just quickly run through the three categories so people know what we're talking about. There are your zero-calorie or non-nutritive sweeteners. They are, you know, hundreds of times sweeter than sugar. That's your aspartame, cyclamate, saccharin, sucralose, ACE-K, neotame. The second category of sweeteners are sugar alcohols, also known as polyols which are made from sugars, um, and they aren't necessarily sweeter than sugar, but they've got fewer calories. And so they're often used to buck up sweet foods and they're combined with your zero-calorie sweeteners. Now, the sugar alcohols were not included in the World Health Organization um, guidelines. They didn't look at the sugar alcohols, okay? So we're just going to put them aside. But they did look at the what they call low-calorie or nutritive sweeteners. Sorry, that, that's the sugar alcohols. But they look, did look at what we call the natural sweeteners. Again, I've got natural in quotation marks, derived from plants such as stevia or uh, monk fruit. Now, I didn't see them mention monk fruit, but they did look at stevia and stevia derivatives. Now, if you're just having the leaf, yes, that's natural. But if you're turning a green leaf into a white powder or a clear liquid, then obviously that's gone through a lot of processing and adding of chemicals, okay? So that's why stevia isn't as natural as it sounds, as it's made to sound. So basically, um, the World Health Organization found that there was no association between using these artificial sweeteners and having better health, having, you know, uh, less diabetes and being uh, a lower body weight. Mm. Just, Just for the record... Romans used lead acetate as a sugar substitute because of its sweet taste, and it wasn't until centuries later that people discovered it could cause lead poisoning and it became illegal. So I'm just saying it often takes humans a long time to realise that what we're consuming is is a health hazard. But here are the problems with these sweet non-sugar sweeteners, all of them. They Firstly, they change the way we taste food, that you know, they can't compete with, you know, real food can't compete with these chemicals. And so once we get used to super sweet food, everything else tastes bland and we have to recalibrate our taste buds to appreciate real food. Sweeteners also change our gut microbiome for the worse. And sweeteners still raise insulin levels. So that is why I think they're not helpful in terms of reducing your risk of diabetes. But here's the real real issue. Our brain evolved to associate sweetness with calories, okay? Mm-hmm. 
So when we eat something sweet, our brain and body expect that it is going to be high in calories. But all sweeteners teach our brains the opposite, that sweet foods don't necessarily provide energy. So the brain then has to says there's something wrong here and it actually responds by ramping up our hunger so that we eat to make up for the calorie deficit in the artificially sweetened food. And over time, people can actually end up consuming more calories than if they'd eaten sugar in the first place. Yeah. So they aren't doing us any favours. And I think the real point is that once we remove sugar from our diet, our sugar cravings actually disappear. And that isn't just my personal experience. So many of my patients have had the same surprising experience. Yes, the first few weeks can be hell and you do want the sweet stuff, but just one month, can you sacrifice it for just one month of your life and then life will actually be brighter. You know, rats that are addicted to sugar artificial sweeteners, they lose interest in sex, they lose interest in play. You know, we dull our appreciation of the of the joys of life when we consume too much sugar because it really it dulls our senses. Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically we won't need artificial sweeteners if we don't crave sweet things. And it doesn't matter if you're having it every just every now and again. But I actually find that, you know, berries now are super sweet. I just find berries are, and, and berries don't tend to get you out of ketosis. But you know what else I've discovered was sweet? It's not really, but now that I don't eat sugar, it tastes sweeter. Macadamia nuts. Nuts actually, to me, have a slight sweetness to them. Yes. Yeah. It's just beautiful. And it's Unless you've experienced it, it's really hard to explain to people that life is actually sweeter without sugar. <laughs> yeah. And you enjoy it more. Absolutely. And you have more time for life because you're not spending so much time eating. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And when you do it, really savour it. Yeah. Alina, is there anything else that you wanted to mention today that we haven't had time and we haven't spoken about? Oh, look, we could speak for hours, but I think um, I think we've got some really good points across. Cool. So tell people how they can find you social media, website, your books? The best place to find me is just to go to my website. I've got three, depending on what you want, drhelenapopovic.com. That's the major one. If you're specifically looking for overcoming emotional eating, binge eating, shedding excess body fat, one thing I will mention, I th- you may have noticed that I don't use the term losing weight. Mm-hmm. I, I talk about shedding excess body fat. The reason for that is that we have a psychological, emotional resistance to losing anything. How do you, you know? How do you feel when you lose something? We don't like to lose anything. We don't. We certainly don't like to lose a loved one. We don't like to lose our job. We don't even like to lose our keys because it's a nuisance. So loss. Anytime we speak about loss, it sets up a subconscious resistance. Yeah. So I never speak about losing weight. I talk about shedding the excess because we do want to get rid of excess. Mm. So that sorry, that was an aside, but I think Uh, it was and I I say reducing, reducing body fat. Because I I agree that the the losing, and I've spoken about this in early podcasts um mm -hmm. around losing, you don't we never want to lose anything. That's right. And what's our instinct? 
once we've lost something, we want to find, find it. it. Yeah, you got to find it. That's right. Um, and and also the other thing too is it's not about it's so not health is not about losing weight. I think we should throw out the bathroom scales. What matters is visceral fat, the fat in and around our internal organs. So if you must measure anything. I mean, I just think the best measure is feeling good, feeling healthy, feeling energetic. But if you must measure, I do uh, recommend a tape measure around your waist. And for women, it's a really sort of broad recommendation, but if you're a female, try and keep your waist circumference less than 80 centimetres, and if you're a man, less than 94 centimetres. And it's not that you're going to get sick and diabetic the minute you hit 94 centimetres or 80 centimetres. It's that that's when we're that's an indication that we're starting to possibly start to accumulate some visceral fat it's just a rough guide yep. so yeah i think that's an important point that i'm not about indiscriminate weight loss at all costs at all it's about as i said feeding your spirit which means increasing your joy of life not starving your body so sorry that was a very long-winded way of, of yeah uh, telling you how to contact me so my my weight uh, related website is winning at slimming.com. Yep. And if you want to know more about Alzheimer's or dementia, which is another huge area of my life because my father had Alzheimer's and his mother had Alzheimer's. So I want to make sure I don't. Um, look up adventurepreventsdementia.com. But okay. there are links to all of that if you just go to my name, drhelenapopovic.com. And, and I write. I will have it in the show notes as well. Right. And and you can sign up for my free, I try to make them weekly, but not always, um, Healthy Bites, which is if I find something, you know, really important research or I want to share something, then I'll send you out um, a, an email and tell you about that. Perfect. So before we finish then, share with the listeners your three top tips. Okay. One, as I've said already, feed your spirit, don't starve your body. Do what lights you up and you'll be a light for others. And what that means to me is live by your values, do what brings you joy and know that this really does affect our eating and our metabolism more than we realise. My second tip, when you eat, just eat. Mm. Don't eat and do anything other than share the meal with family or friends. Savour every mouthful and use eating as an opportunity to practice mindfulness. You'll enjoy it more and you'll need less. Yeah. And thirdly, I think we all need to practice nutritional tolerance. In other words, let's not judge each other for our dietary choices. We're all different and no single way of eating is ideal for for everyone. Tune into your body, discover what's best for you because no one knows your body like you do. Yeah. And and a lot of people don't even know what's what's right for them because they oh. so so numb to it that they don't know. So actually, the first step is is just tuning in to find out, yes, what it is that you want or like or yeah, even need to try that you have never tried before. Yes, exactly. It's just we just need to so slow down and even just. Every morning, um, this really helped me. I just used to, I still do because it's now just part of my routine. I close my eyes just for two minutes, set the alarm because otherwise I don't have time for 20 minutes of meditation, but I do have time for two. I will just sit there, close my eyes and become aware of my body. Become aware of, I start with my fingertips. You become aware of an energy or a warmth or a tingling 
And then I just move my way slowly through my body and become aware of it. And I think that is the first step to healing anything. And the more you do that, the more you then intuitively, intrinsically start to get a sense of, you know what, I feel I need to eat this or I feel I need to do that or I feel I need to just slow down, go to bed early, know thyself. Yeah. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. It's just been a a, a real pleasure and privilege. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Helena is one of many guests I've spoken to who, during their training as doctors, nurses and other healthcare providers, have questioned the validity of suggesting that type 2 diabetic patients eat carbs and sugar. And they're often belittled and put down by their teachers and tutors. And as Helena said, they are cut down for suggesting that type 2 diabetics should eliminate sugar. I wonder when the medical profession, the people that are teaching are going to change. I suspect it will happen when more of the doctors become aware of low carb and they in turn start teaching the younger generation on their ways of treating type 2 diabetes. One section of the Fabulously Keto um, Diet and Lifestyle Journal focuses on treats and gets you to find treats that are not food and drink. So Helena is of the same opinion. You have to stop thinking of food as a treat. Food treats work well for the companies that make them, but no one else benefits. We're constantly attacking our body and our health by having these, in inverted commas, food treats. They're not a treat. As I mentioned in the podcast, I hadn't heard of the milkshake study But it was fascinating how the words affected the physiology of the body and changed the hormones. I thought that was, you know, I know that words affect the body. And I I said in this podcast, I've said it many times about how you speak to yourself and how you um, word things is really important. But actually, it's changing the hormones. I thought that was fascinating. And then I wanted to touch on these these new diet pills that we're hearing a lot about. They're getting a lot of promotion. Um, People are taking them and they're having great success. And, you know, Helena went into some of the downsides of taking those. And my personal opinion is that it's never good to mess with our bodies. When I was fat when I was fatter, shall I say, I did think about these things sometimes. You know, you'd see them advertised on the TV. You'd see them advertised, maybe not the TV, but in um, pharmacies. And I did think about them because I felt so desperate that I couldn't change the way I was eating. But because I've always been very conscious of what well for the last 20 odd years I've been very conscious of what I put in and on my body other than certain foods um I would have never taken them you know it would have just gone against the grain for me 
but I can understand how people get so wrapped up in in this and that they would take them. So it's just worth paying attention to why are you why are you looking to lose the weight? You know, what's your ultimate outcome? If it's just to lose the weight, that's one thing. But if you want to be healthy as well so that you can do things so that you can play with your grandkids, you know, run up a hill, do whatever it is that you want to do, then we need to be thinking about health as well. I knew that aspartame and saccharin make you eat more, but I didn't know the mechanism and that we are evolved to associate sweet with a greater intake of calories. And that when you have the saccharin and the aspartame, you're getting the sweet, but not the calories. It's expecting more calories. So that makes you eat more. Anyway, I thought Helena had some great points all throughout the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you know people who want to get started on low carb, keto, or any of the lower carb ways of eating, they want to put something in place that's really going to stand them in good stead that encompasses accountability along with learning and making better choices, then I'm running a course on the 25th of August. It's available to anybody that wants to join, whether you've already started low carb or not. And the website for that is fabulouslyketo.com forward slash group hyphen summer hyphen 23. And the show notes for today's episode can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 147. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health, 
or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. 